Well, it's good to be with you. I didn't know I put your pastor to sleep every night. <laughs> I've been accused of that on many, many occasions, but uh, that sounded like a good putting to sleep, so I'm thankful for that. I have to admit, the fellowship at that point was one way. Uh, he was going to sleep with me, but I was already asleep. Uh, one of the things that has been wonderful in the years that I have been at the seminary, uh, students uh, each, each semester evaluate my courses, and again and again they say this course was fine except for the time. Um, my classes meet at 7.30 each morning. We go for two hours till 9.30, and I can't do anything about the time, but it's been a great discipline for me because I have to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, because you know the freeways in Southern California, and I'm sure you do, you know that uh, you need to be on the road early to make sure you're in class on time. I mean, the students can wander in 15 minutes late, but I can't. So I've developed that discipline, and, uh, and so that means getting to bed a little earlier uh, during the week. Uh, well, Benjamin Franklin said, you know, early to bed, early to rise makes a man uh, wealthy and wise. Well, I've done the early to bed and early to rise. I'm not sure I'm wealthy. I hope I'm wise by this point uh, uh, as far as my life is concerned. But it's been a great discipline, and that's why I could assure James that probably I was, uh, I was sleeping by the time he was listening to me late at night. But it certainly is good to be with you today and uh, to join with your pastor, James, and also to get to know Jason and Marcus, who have been students as well, and to know their faithfulness and their desire to know God better through the Word, and uh, it was uh, really privileged uh, to get the email to, uh, to be able to be with you this, this Sunday. And it's always a joy to be able to say yes, as you take away the calendar at times, uh, I always feel bad when one of the alumni asks me to come and I have to say no because it cannot fit into the schedule because that's a priority as far as uh, the speaking engagements I do take is the, the alumni are right there at the top. I'll do everything I can to seek to, to be with uh, the men that God has privileged us to have a, uh, an opportunity to minister to at, uh, at the Master Seminary. And it's exciting to come. Uh, literally both here in Southern California and literally around the world to be associated with alumni and see what God is doing and multiplying the ministry through them. And it's exciting to hear what is taking place here in this northern Orange County area as Cornerstone and the ministry that God has uh, given to this body of believers is uh, expanding for the glory of God. And so it is a privilege to be with you this morning. It's always difficult to know exactly what to share as uh, as you come to uh, to a church, um, pastors are always very very good. They say, "Well, share whatever is on your heart." You know, whatever you have to share, we know that is what uh, the Lord wants our congregation to hear. And it always puts a pressure back on me. Um, I always like it when you know someone says, "Now we want you to do exactly this." So, what I have uh, done over the years is uh, say, all right, if I was a pastor and uh, 
and flowing out of the study that I'm doing right now within the Scripture. If I was to be preaching on a regular basis on Sunday morning, what would I be preaching? And uh, that's exactly what I come to share. And over the years, I realize that, that usually what God is doing in my life at that time through my study of the Scripture is very, very apropos to the, the churches to which I come now, I must apologize, I made about 50 outlines uh, up. Actually, these are more review. You can actually follow along without having the outline before you. And uh, so I just told uh, the men at the back, well, kind of make it one to a family who didn't get one. <clears throat> kind of move them around so you can look on with someone close. And I know there's Kinko's or whatever right around here that if you want your own copy, feel free to, to run them off. You'll notice there's no copyright on it, so you can... You can distribute them to your, to your heart's desire. But we want to take a look at a very interesting passage in Psalm 110. But to get there, I have been impacted as our church has been going through the letter to the Hebrews. And I've been tracking with, uh, with our pastor week by week and preparing myself on Saturdays for the, for the ministry of, of the Word in our own church. And... Uh, being reminded again of, of Hebrews, these believers, these Jewish believers, most probably at, uh, at Rome in the middle of the first century, uh, somewhere in the mid-60s during the time of the Neronian persecution, where to be a Christian could mean very definite death within just a few weeks or months because of what was taking place. That if uh, you were accused of being a Christian and were hauled before the Roman magistrate, you'd be asked to give a confession. And if you confess your faith in Jesus Christ, that ultimately you would die. And so in a situation like that, believers were certainly counting the cost. And the temptation was, because these were Jewish Christians, that at this point the Jews were not being persecuted by the Roman government in Rome, that if they would leave their confession of Christ and go back into their previous Judaistic ways, then it would be life. It would be physical, physical life for them. And so that was a tremendous temptation for those believers. And we can certainly appreciate the fact that if our confession of Christ was going to cost us our life, that uh, physically we would, we would be really reflecting upon, is, life, you know, is, is my life to be lived in Christ, and is death really gain? Uh, do, I, do I realize ultimately that to be absent from the body, be present with Christ, is a far better thing? You know, we can, we can sing that, we can confess that until we stare death in the face. And it's interesting as you come to Hebrews, extremely surprised at this myself, to realize that the very first imperative, the very first exhortation that the writer of Hebrews gives to his audience is in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, when he says this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, and here's the imperative, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. Set your attention 
direct your mind toward Jesus. You should do this because you are holy brethren. You are brothers and sisters in Christ, set apart unto God through Christ. Partakers of a heavenly calling. That is your reward. That will be your inheritance. You have been called by God from heaven by means of His Holy Spirit. Joined to Jesus Christ. And that calling ultimately is a heavenly calling because Christ is now in heaven. So when we die, we will go to be with Him. If we're part of the rapture generation, He will come and we will still go to be with Him. And so, once death or rapture takes place for the Christian, from that point on, he will ever be with Jesus. Think about that. From your last breath, for the rest of your eternal existence, you will be with Jesus, partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle, the messenger, the sent one from God to give the message of God to us. In fact, Hebrews begins in Hebrews 1-2 with the fact that God in His last days has spoken to us in His Son, in a son-like individual, a son who has all the attributes and character of His Father. He is the Apostle, the Sent One, the Messenger, and the high priest of our confession. And truly, that's what sets us apart as Christians. We confess Jesus to be Lord and Savior. So consider Jesus. And before this in Hebrews and after this in Hebrews, the Old Testament passage to which the preacher, the the author of Hebrews gives to these Old Testament saints. The Psalm 110. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, it is the most quoted passage in all of the Old Testament outside of Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12 outside of that great suffering servant passage that prophesied of Jesus Christ, the next most cited passage within the New Testament of the Old Testament is Psalm 110. And so when the, when the preacher in Hebrew says to his audience, consider Jesus, one of the great passages that can help believers to to fulfill that exhortation that is given is the 110th Psalm. So that's this morning what we want to take a look at together. It has already been read in our hearing. Note the Psalm begins with an introduction. It begins with a superscription that is part of the Hebrew text and is vital for our understanding of the psalm. That little phrase, a psalm of David. Don't overlook it. 
This is the song. This is the praise. This is the expression of David. And of course, as you go through the the book of Psalms, you realize that David is the major author of, uh, of the Psalms. That almost half of the Psalms come from his pen. He is the one whom God used to pen the words that then were handed over to the, the choir directors, the musicians at the temple to put music so that Israel might sing these songs within their worship of the Lord. And ultimately, along with the Davidic Psalms, Psalms of other writers, until ultimately the book of Psalms, as we have it within the Old Testament, has come to us. But this is a psalm authored by David. David is the one responsible for this. This is very, very vital because obviously, as he begins by saying, the Lord said to my Lord, this is David speaking. This is David speaking of his Lord. Again, we have to reflect on who David is. David is the king of Israel. Anointed king by Samuel as a teenager. Recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Of course, Saul, who was the reigning king at the time, saw David as a threat and so sought to kill him. And so for his years, from his teenage years through his 30th year, David literally spent most of those years fleeing from Saul. And yet he was the anointed, recognized king as far as God was concerned. That began very, very early as far as Israel as well. Even though Saul was the reigning king through, the, through David's slaying of Goliath, it was shown to Israel and to the nations that this was Israel's warrior king. They had demanded a king from the Lord, the king who would go out and fight their battles for them, lead them in victory, bring them the not only victory, but then the fruits of the victory, the blessing, the prosperity that would go along with it. David was shown by his defeat of Goliath to be a godly man, a man who trusted God, whom God was able to defeat, the champion of the Philistines. And Israel was able to win a great victory that day. And from that point on, the nation, the nations, the Israelites, Philistines and others of that word went out, would understand that David was the king whom God had chosen for Israel. Yet Saul withstands him. And the people allow him to do so until ultimately Saul dies. And even then, David is a recognized king, is only recognized by his own tribe of Judah. The Israelites still turn to the failed house of Saul, seeking to maintain that kingship, but ultimately that collapses as well. And So ultimately, in his 37th year, all of the tribes of Israel come to David and recognize him as king. 
David is the king over Israel. And even though God continues to give him great victories, the kingdom of Israel is, is, is broadened. The nations around come under the authority of David. They recognize that David is the king chosen by Israel's God. Nevertheless, it's still tenuous. There is the rebellion of his own son Absalom. There is the, the ridicule and shame that comes upon David as you continue to read through Second Samuel. But, but ultimately, in the end, David's throne is established. He, he is the king of Israel. From his teenage years, anointed and recognized by God, slowly but surely by the people as the king of Israel. The one who wins victories over the, the nations around Israel. There is no greater man upon the earth in that generation than David. He was the George Bush of his day. All of the nations recognized that he was the supreme and ultimate authority. There was no one that had his power. No one that had his prominence. No one else that had his position. And yet this David humbly bows the knee and says there's one greater than himself. For he begins the Lord, that is Yahweh, Israel's covenant-keeping God. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has declared. In fact, that word that trans translated says is a word that predominantly is used throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. An oracle that comes from God, a prophetic oracle. An oracle that speaks of the future. Yahweh declares to my Lord, and he uses another word, my Adonai, my Master, my Sovereign One. Here is a king saying, here's my king, here's my authority that Yahweh is speaking to. This is, a, this is significant because as David begins the psalm, he refers to another individual as being superior to himself. His Adonai, his Lord. And this individual, not David, is going to be the main subject of Psalm 110. David is just the mouthpiece. David is just the spokesman to speak of this greater one. And when we realize David's position, when we realize David's godly character, who is greater than David? Well, the subject of the psalm is greater than David. And David recognized this Lord as the one greater than himself, even though he was the reigning king. And so, Psalm 110 is picked up within the New Testament's. Rightly so, it's picked up on the very words of Jesus. Passage is recorded three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Take a look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 45. Matthew records 
Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. <laughs> By the way, we've got a question and answer coming up. We should be very, very Jesus-like. I should get the last question. You can ask me questions when it's all done. I should be able to ask you a question and get the answer. And so here is Jesus. Jesus has been in the temple a couple of days before the, uh, the Last Supper and His crucifixion. And they've been asking Him questions. Now, Jesus asks the Pharisees a question. He says in verse 42, What do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is He? And they say to Him, they know their Old Testament, the son of David. The Messiah is going to be in David's line. He is going to be the son of David. Now, he's going to have the character of David, but the father was always recognized within Jewish society as, as having more honor, more prestige than the son, even though the son will be a reflection of that and will reflect the, the glory of the father during his own generation. He's going to be the son of David. But you see, in that, that statement, which is true, but it's not complete. Because there's almost an assumption that if he's the son of David, somehow David is greater than his son. And that's not true. And so he says to them in verse 43, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Now he tells the 110 Psalms, only written by David, it's written by David under the direction of the Holy Spirit. David in the Spirit called him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my right hand, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. There's the quotation from the 110th Psalm. And then Jesus brings his own conclusion. If David then calls him Lord, if David calls him Adonai, Master, Sovereign One. How is he his son? Well, you know the answer from reading the New Testament. Jesus is physically in the line of David. Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. shows very, very definitely that Mary, along with Joseph, was also in the Davidic line. Jesus, born in the flesh, was born in the line of David. And yet Jesus did not have a human father. He was virgin conceived, virgin born. So Joseph was his legal father, was also in the line of David. Jesus Christ is the God-man. And yes, even though physically through Mary he's in the line of David, he is greater than David. Because he is something more than David. He is God in human flesh. David was just a man. Jesus Christ was a God-man. The great truth of the Incarnation. And to prove his point, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And the fact that David is the author. David is the one who says this. Then how could David says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, 
And so these words are indicative of the greater position of this subject in Psalm 110 than even David himself. Now, Jesus Christ says that this psalm points to him. And we hear the exhortation, consider Jesus. Let's look together at what David says about his Lord as we consider Jesus together from Psalm 110 this morning. Okay, that's all introduction. Now we'll get into the text. A Psalm of David. And in the first three verses, we see this divine oracle. Yahweh declares. And again, to the original audience, they realize this point, this is prophetic. This is a thus says the Lord. And what does the Lord declare concerning David's Lord? Well, simply put, the divine oracle states that David's Lord will be a king and a greater king than David. For notice in in verse 1, David speaks of his Lord as having a future place of honor. Sit at my right hand. Now, the right hand was the most important position. And the in the courts of Israel and the ancient Near East. The one who was allowed to sit upon a king's right hand had the place of honor. Notice it says, sit. Where it has the idea of, of, of sitting that a task has been accomplished. That the reason why this position of honor is being given to this individual is because this individual has fulfilled a task that has been given to him by the king, by the sovereign. And that task has been completed. That task has been fulfilled. And because that task that had been given to him had been completed... With an A-plus grade, then the place of honor was then given to that individual. And so here is Yahweh speaking to David's Lord and says to him, you have fulfilled the task. And so take the place of honor and have that place of honor until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet until I bring your enemies in subjection to you. A footstool. A footstool, obviously, is when you sit, you put your feet up. And it's very interesting because as you put your feet up, the the footstool basically is ultimately 
to, to give your, your feet rest, but those, those feet within the ancient world to put feet upon the neck of your enemies was an image of victory. And so, task accomplished, take the place of honor until finally your enemies will come under your control. But particularly what is emphasized in verse 1 is this future place of honor that will look back to a task accomplished and will look ahead to a victory that will be won. And when we come to the New Testament, all right, after the first three times when Psalm 110 is referred to in the words of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the next time Psalm 110 is referred to within the New Testament is in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And Peter's words helps us to appreciate the future that David was looking toward. When David said that his Lord would have a future place of honor, Peter said what David as a prophet looked forward to see had taken place. For notice he says in verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, this is Jesus, after His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He has ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, because of His honored position, He also is allowed to, to pour forth the Holy Spirit which he has poured forth, from which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, quoting Psalm 110, 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The future honoring of David's Lord, says Peter, has taken place. It has taken place in the ascension of Jesus Christ. Task accomplished. By the way, without the, the quotation of the verse itself, Peter, a few days later, is recording in Acts chapter 3 as he preaches to the Jews again at the temple. Can, uh, can say... In verse 19 of chapter 3, Therefore repent and return so your sins may be wiped away, nor the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that He may send Jesus to Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient times. Heaven has to receive Him. He has ascended. He now has the place of honor where He will stay until God will send Him back to this earth for the period of the restoration of all things that the prophets also spoke about in the Old Testament. So all was future to David, but Acts 2 and Acts 3, and again in Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, this is where the apostles have been brought before the Sanhedrin 
and have been given strict orders not to preach any more in the name of Jesus. This is where Peter says in verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. So you can't read the early chapters of the book of Acts without recognizing that Peter and the apostles, reflecting back on Psalm 110, are saying that the place of honor, the task accomplished and the resulting place of honor is now given to David's Lord. Now, what was that task accomplished? Why does Jesus have the place of honor? Why can't He sit? What was done? What was the Father's will for Him? Well, you take a look at Hebrews 1.3. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It's Hebrews 1.3. And then a little later on in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. What was the task accomplished? The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin. Dying in your place, my place. Dying the death that we deserved. Making purification for sin. He has now ascended to the place of honor until, says Hebrews 10, God will fulfill His Word to make His enemies a footstool for His feet. Can I say, basically, in Psalm 110, verse 1, David is speaking about three things that are going to take place in the future. That David's Lord would have task accomplished, place of honor, and ultimate victory over His enemies. Where we stand today, this side of the cross, this side of the day of Pentecost, is the first two of those have already been accomplished. What David predicted would take place concerning the task being accomplished has been accomplished. Christ has died for sin. And second, has been accomplished. He has been honored at the right hand of the Father. The third still awaits fulfillment. But we can be assured that if the first two have been accomplished, so will the third. Because God is a faithful God. And so David speaks about his Lord's future place of honor. And he goes on, having said, until your enemies are a footstool, to describe that in verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Again, Yahweh is still speaking to David's master, saying, you will have the scepter. You will have the rule. And he uses the term scepter, which goes back to Genesis chapter 49. 
not just the line of David, but the tribe of Judah would have the rule. The scepter will be established in Judah. This is the one who will do so. And will rule from Zion, from Jerusalem, in the midst of his enemies. Those who have opposed Yahweh and Yahweh's God in the past will now have his rule in the midst of them. And so David's Lord will have a future rule from Zion. A rule that is also spoken of back in Psalm 2, verses 4 to 9. We won't look at it, but you can see there, God has already issued the decree. He's already made the covenant oath. But again, the rule will take place from Judah and the enemies of his ultimate king will be shattered. And then he goes on in in verse 3. Speaking of this future rule from Zion... A king needs an army. And he speaks in verse 3 of that future army. David's Lord's future army. Now, David was a general. He knew something about armies. He knew something about how good it is to have a faithful, strong group of men who would do what the general said. And he, he speaks... He speaks, David, of this greater one's army, your people. Now, depending upon your translations, uh, this is one of the hardest passages in the Psalms. Because of some textual confusion that has come within the original text. But the, the meaning is, is, is fairly clear. Your people will be volunteers. They will, they will bring themselves as a free, free will offering. There's going to be no draft for this army. No selective service. No, you've got to serve. This is going to be made up of volunteers who will freely come in the day of the display of this greater Lord's power. They will be in holy array. They, as we reminded at the beginning of the service, they will be holy ones. Holy ones who from the womb of the dawn, the beginning of the dawn, when the dew comes in in the land to refresh the ground. Just like we have in Southern California. Just how wonderful it is on spring and early summer and into, you know, fall days. We don't get rain, but we get the dew, which refreshes the earth. What he's saying is, your your army will be made up of these holy volunteers who are just like the, the beginning of the day that is refreshed by the dew. In other words, you're going to have an army that is always ready to go. That are volunteering and eager and ready. And yes are refreshed continually so that victory will be yours. And so in these first three verses, the divine oracle has simply said, David's Lord is going to be this ultimate king. A king who will first accomplish a task. 
get a place of honor from which God will send him to win his victory with his, with his ever-refreshed army over the Lord's enemies upon the earth. But then here comes the stunner in verses 4 to 7. Or you can go back into the Old Testament. You can realize that, yeah, okay, the son of David is going to come and he's going to be the conquering king in the future. But David now says, beyond this one being a conquering king, David's Lord will also be an eternal priest. And notice his words, Yahweh, the same Yahweh who has given a divine oracle in verse 1, is also the Yahweh who has sworn, who has given covenant oath. And so now he talks about a divine oath. And of course, once a covenant is made, once an oath has been established, it is binding. So he will not change his mind. He will not repent. This, this has to come because it is a covenant. And what is the covenant? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. David's Lord will be an eternal priest. Now what stuns us in Israel is the fact that the kingly line was in Judah, but the priestly line was in Levi. And the high priest was in the family of Aaron, a son of Levi. And there was no confusion. Those two could not be brought together. But here is David saying, the Lord also has sworn by covenant oath. It has to take place. This conquering king is also going to be a priest. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 14. when Abraham had defeated the kings of the east. And as he returns, the, the priest of the God Most High, the true God of heaven, Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, a king priest comes and blesses in the name of God Almighty Abraham, and Abraham pays tithes to him. He has a priestly ministry as a mediator between the God of heaven and Abraham. He is a king priest. And here is the oath Yahweh says to his son, you're going to be that kind of a priest. You're not going to be a priest in the line of Aaron. You're going to be a priest in the line of Melchizedek, of the order of Melchizedek. You're going to be a Melchizedekian kind of priest. We don't have time to look at that today, but you get into Hebrews chapters 5 through 7, and the whole development of Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus Christ is given there. And it's interesting in Hebrews 5, 5 and 6 and chapter 7, 17 and 21. Once again, Psalm 110 is quoted as being foundational to understanding the priesthood of Jesus Christ. By the way, Hebrews gets into Jesus is a priest, but very different from the Aaronic priest. 
than the fact that he offers one sacrifice. And that sacrifice is not an animal, but his own precious blood. And that what's the the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to have been fulfilled in what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Now, you would imagine that having talked about the fact that David's Lord was to have a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, you would imagine the verses 5 through 7 then would deal with aspects of his priestly ministry. We think, well, okay, we'll get into sacrificial language. But David doesn't do that. David reversed right back to say this eternal priest once again is going to be a conqueror, a warrior who is going to win God's victory. And notice the reversal in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Now, he's speaking to his own Lord. You are a priest. It now says, the Adonai is going to be at your right hand. You see, the, the coming king, the coming priest himself has a master within the economy of the Godhead. God the Father to God the Son. And David says in verse 5 that God the Father, Yahweh, the one who has given the covenant oath, is the one now who will be at your right hand. Now, the image is just a little different because now we're taking a look at going into battle. The one at the right hand in battle is the counselor to the general. He is the one who guides and gives. He's, he's the right hand man. So we can now, it's kind of like the caddy in golf. Okay, I've got to make the shot. What do you think? What iron do I need? You know, take a look at the lie. You know, and here's the guy hauling, hauling the clubs and saying, you know, you know, every major golfer swears by their caddy. Why were you able to win? Well, my caddy gave me good counsel. Well, can I put it at this point that basically using that image, that what David is revealing is that in the future day to this king priest, the father himself is going to be caddy to his own son, giving provision, advice, direction, counsel, so that the king, son, will be victorious. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. And now it seems as though the he reverts back to David's Lord. But you see, he will be victorious. He will shatter the kings. He will judge the nations. He will conquer the armies because, the, because he will fill the nations with corpses. He is going to scatter the chief men over a broad country. He is going to be victorious. But he's going to be victorious in the future because of the one who is aiding him, advising him providing for him, who is none other than Yahweh, Israel's God. And so this priest will also have the provision, direction, 
of God the Father, and so his victory is assured. And the psalm ends on an interesting note. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. We're still, we're still now the day of his Lord. And the image here goes back to Judges chapter 7 and Gideon's battle against the, the Midianites and how Gideon and his army was refreshed as they took water along the way. He will drink from the book by the wayside. And the idea here is there will be continual sustenance. Therefore, he'll lift up his head. In other words, he's never going to look like the Lakers having run for 48 minutes at the end of the game. There's going to be continuing strength. It's going to be like, here is this one whom God has ordained to conquer. And the conquest will never end because David's Lord will never run out of strength. He's going to drink, be continually refreshed. His head will always be up, ready to go. But we'd like to have that as a coach. 48 minutes, you're going into overtime and you look at your best player and it's like he hasn't played 48 minutes at all. Raring to go just like the beginning of the game. And you see, the image is, as, as the psalm comes to an end, God has ordained that David's Lord be king. God has ordained that David's Lord be priest. And there is no way in which David's Lord will ever run out of gas. He is going to fulfill everything that God has spoken and God has covenanted will take place through David's Lord. So clearly David stated that his Lord, his Adonai, his master, his king... His sovereign one, the one who is greater than he, would be the future king over the earth and that his Lord would be an eternal priest. David's Lord is none other than the prophesied one who would be king-priest. Zechariah 6, 11-13 talks about Joshua the high priest being given a crown and the fact that he would rule. And a picture of the combination of the crown with the priestly office, the coming king-priest. You see, because the rule of the earth begins with the dealing with sin. And David's Lord is a king who has dealt with sin. Well, this is what David says. So what? What can we gain from this together this morning? Can I give you five significant applications in closing that can be derived from the truths we have seen in Psalm 110? The first thing hopefully you picked up is that we must know the Old Testament to gain a better understanding of Jesus as He revealed in the New Testament. You realize how knowing the old, just knowing this one passage, Psalm 110, helps you to appreciate so much more the revelation of Jesus in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, 
in the New Testament letters. Now, it is true that we can gain an elementary understanding of Jesus in the New Testament, but it is filled in so greatly when we know the Old Testament. Can I encourage you? A strange part of the Bible, the 78% that we kind of avoid, is so very, very vital for our understanding of the final 22%. Yes, we want to be New Testament believers, but to be true New Testament believers also means we have an understanding of the Old Testament. Second thing, notice how Jesus is the focus of the prophetic message of the Old Testament. Notice how the psalm is all about him. Well, so is the Old Testament. Remember the two men on the road to Emmaus, how Jesus walks with them for two to three hours and shares with them all the things in the, the Torah, Moses and the prophets concerning himself. Sometimes we think, boy, if I, get, if I get lost in the Old Testament, I'll forget Jesus. Can I say this? The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Old Testament will only direct you to Him. Consider Jesus. The Old Testament is about Him. Third, Jesus is the one who will rule the earth in fulfillment of God's covenant oath to David. That's still future. It's still coming. That is our hope. That is our inheritance. We talk about Christ as our King. Our King ultimately is going to rule and reign. And we will rule and reign with Him. Fourth, He is an eternal priest who has offered the final, once-for-all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He is the priest who has offered the final, once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Why don't we have a continuing priesthood? Why don't we have... Why, why do we bring lambs and bulls here this morning to be slain as we came in with an altar here? Smoke to ascend again. Why do we go through that? Because Jesus is the full and final sacrifice. We heard in the testimony of what sin does in a life. Sin has been paid for by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He has the place of honor today because task has been accomplished. Fifth, Jesus was acknowledged by David as his Lord, his master, his sovereign one. The one who gave him counsel and he listened. The one that he looked forward to as being greater than he. Do you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord today? Is there something greater in your life than Jesus? And as again, we are in the testimony. Confess it. Get rid of it in your life. Consider Jesus. Make him the center of your life. May our minds always be directed toward Him. Is He your Lord today? Is He your High Priest and coming King? Are you here this morning rejoicing in the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin? You look back with thanksgiving and you look forward with anticipation of the fact that your priest is your coming King. That's David's Lord. Is he your Lord this morning? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the injunction that you give to we who are holy brethren, we who are partakers of a heavenly calling to consider Jesus. Father, we have sought to do that from your word this morning together to focus our attention upon Jesus. We thank you for the 110th Psalm.
where David speaks about his Lord, and his Lord we know today is Jesus. Father, we thank you for the revelation that David's Lord was the coming King. Father, we thank you for the revelation that David's Lord was the eternal priest. Father, I pray that as we've considered Jesus, that those of us who know him as Lord and Savior would, would give thanks to the facts that he has provided the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And take this moment just to, to respond to what you refer from the Word. And thank Jesus for the fact that he died in your place. He died for the sin, the penalty of death that you deserved. Thank him for it. If you've never, if you've never trusted Christ, he bring before you even now your sin and your need to trust what he has done for your forgiveness. Father, not only would we thank Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, but also we anticipate the fact that he is going to return. And we, would, we will be from that point on ever with him. Father, death has been conquered. The future is secure. Because Jesus is the future king. Father, because we have considered Jesus, may, Father, we truly bend the knee and allow him to be our master, to be our sovereign one, to be our counselor, our guide, our director, to be preeminent in our lives. As we go forth from this place, we pray in his great and powerful name. Amen.